Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bradley Lecture Series podcast on the AEI Podcast Channel. I'm Tal Fordgay. Today, we'll be listening to a 2016 lecture from Professor Lawrence Mead, a professor of politics and public policy at New York University, a lecture called Burdens of Freedom, Why America Leads. In this lecture, Professor Mead argues that people focus too much on America's economic power as the basis for American wealth and influence when the true basis of America's strength is our individualist culture. The basic idea of this lecture is exploring the roots of what Professor Mead calls American primacy. What is American primacy exactly? Well, Professor Mead will go into greater detail, but for now, suffice it to say that it encompasses how America became a global power as we know it today, on the world stage and an economic powerhouse domestically. His new book, Burdens of Freedom, Cultural Difference in American Power, which will be published just after this podcast goes up, explores many of the same themes. Professor Mead argues that political scientists, economists, and sociologists tend to overstate the importance of America's economic power as the basis for its global influence and its general superpower status. And the true basis of America's primacy on the world stage is our individualist culture. The threat to American primacy, he argues, does not come from rivals such as China, but from the decay of individualism within society. And Professor Mead goes on to outline precisely what the sources of such decay are. His interest follows on the work of Samuel Huntington and Francis Fukuyama, both of whom gave Bradley lectures at AEI on this very same topic. And now, without further ado, here's Professor Lawrence Mead speaking about Burdens of Freedom, Why America Leads. American wealth and power is due, I think, mostly to an individualist culture. This matters more than America's material assets. Uh, and second, still more outrageous, this culture emphasizes obligation rather than freedom. Despite our rhetoric, America is not a free country in any simple sense. Rather, it is a responsible country in which ordinary Americans bear the burdens of freedom. And it's bearing those burdens that generates our wealth and power. As far as I know, no one has ever said both these things before, uh, maybe for good reasons. But we, we hear every day that America is a free country. Actually, I think it's an individualist country. And that means that American freedom is not carefree. It's actually based on obligation. Now, how did I get there? Well, here's what we're going to discuss. We'll look first at the primacy debate about whether American leadership in the world can endure the rise of rivals in Asia. And in discussing that, I'll emphasize culture rather than economics. Culture here means basically what countries think life is about, how people ought to behave, and how values are determined. To show the importance of culture in generating wealth and power, we'll look at history, and also what Francis Fukuyama called the end of history. And I'll argue that it's individualism that has made America rich. I'll then explain the difference between the individualist culture, culture found in Western countries like the U.S. and the cultures of the non-Western world. I'll discuss some other factors which have helped promote American primacy, such as geography, capitalism, and good government. But I will, all, I will contend that all of these are secondary to culture. We'll look more closely then at the burdens of freedom. What is it about American freedom, freedom American style, that produces uh, obligation and with it wealth and power? American freedom, I'll argue, is strenuous. It involves a number of obligations, and more than this, freedom itself is actually a form of obligation. We do suffer several important social problems which suggest that an individualist culture is weakening in America. 
Uh, and that is, in fact, our major problem in dealing with uh, rivals such as China. Both China and America are actually in the throes of cultural change in opposite directions, and that is likely to determine the outcome of world leadership. I do think American primacy will endure. An individualist culture has advantages over Asia, uh, but at the same time, whether we endure is going to depend a lot on whether we manage to preserve our individualist culture and continue to bear the burdens of freedom. Now let's turn to the primacy debate, the issue about whether America will continue to lead the world. The usual view is economic and pessimistic. A number of observers think that China or India will take over American leadership because their co the economies of those countries will grow to be larger than our own. The usual response is that America still leads in specific forms of power, uh, but both of these views tend to ignore culture. They assume, in fact, that all countries are essentially the same, differing only in material ways or in the scale of their resources. Uh, if you look at it this way, the omens may look rather bad. The latest figures on GDP calculated on the basis of purchasing power parity on that basis, China has overtaken the United States. China is number one, then the European Union, 28 countries, and then America. So we are no longer top of the heap. If you calculate wealth in terms of dollars, then we are still ahead, but China is likely to catch us in the next few years. However, we will still be much richer on a per capita basis. Per capita income in America is over $56,000. That's about four times the level in China. So we're still richer. That's very clear. And you can also point to defense spending, where we have an enormous advantage over any over a whole series of countries, including China. But then look at soft power. This means soft power means the admiration other countries have for our uh, institutions and, and values. Uh, in a current ranking, recent ranking, uh, we rank third uh, behind the United Kingdom and Germany. Very good company. Uh, the Western powers dominate that ranking, and China is dead last at 30. So it may look as if we're uh, looking good here. However, all these details can change. Uh, a deeper response requires that we look at the nature of the countries. Where do they come from? What are they really like? What is their culture? What are their values? And here we have to look at history, past development, and we have to take seriously that the way people, what the people think life, life is about, ways of life, have a whole lot to do with what a country is like. And here, all countries are not the same. There are, in fact, enormous differences, which have traditionally been ignored in assessments of world power. Uh, and the Americans went on to become still richer and stronger, taking over British primacy about a century ago and going on to lead the world, as they still do today. Here's an important omen of that primacy. It shows the U.S.'s Constitution, uh, one of our first warships, defeating a British ship in the War of 1812. It shows the confidence that the U.S. would later show in world affairs. The historian Charles F. Frant Adams, Jr. wrote that on that day, America emerged as a world power, a world power, 1812. Now, he's a little ahead of himself. He weren't actually a great power in 1812. We had a ways to go uh, before we get to the, the ships like the USS uh, Lincoln. Uh, but uh, it did show the temperament that we would show later on in asserting our power and vision. And in fact, almost only a little later than this, in the 1820s, foreign observers predicted that America would one day lead the world. In the 1820s, they saw it coming. Compared to this, the non-Western world, the characteristic pattern is very different. These, these societies develop important civilizations of enduring interest and importance, but they don't show the same dynamism 
and change that you find in the West, and they show much weaker government. Countries like India and China tend to take a characteristic form early and then change very little for centuries. And only in the 19th century did, did pressure get put on them by the Western world to uh, get on board and start to modernize. And that is the thing uh, that distinguishes them from Europe. The difference is that the non-Western cultures lacked that up-from-the-bottom quality that you find in Europe, where there's this continual ferment to change and improve. That's missing outside Europe. But another, another important fact is that history has ended. What I mean by that is that today's uh, major divisions in the world are really not due to politics in the ordinary sense. Political differences do not explain why the West and America lead the world today. It's not just because we're freer, although we often are. Uh, a lot of conservatives think that's the key difference. Here's where we differ. I think the key difference is individualism, not freedom per se. The key is a special kind of society that achieves both freedom and discipline. Francis Fukuyama wrote that ideological differences in the world have diminished since the end of the Cold War and the defeat of communism. And I think that's generally true. Today, hardly anybody is against freedom, at least not openly. Pretty much everyone is in favor of capitalism and democracy, at least in formal terms. Today, American parties are strongly polarized, but actually the ideological differences between them today are actually smaller than they were uh, several generations ago. We no longer have a serious left in America which believes which attacks capitalism and wants to have an alternative economy. And on the right, we don't find conservatives attacking the welfare state in, in principle. In general, those fundamentals are accepted, and the divisions are, have to do much more with the rivalry among the leaders and the parties. In fact, the fading of world ideological difference just highlights earlier differences, which go back much further in time than, than ideology. And that's culture. Culture is, in fact, the big difference in the world today. Uh, most of the serious divisions are actually between the West and the non-West. And that occurs internationally between ourselves and the Asian powers, but also domestically. Our, as I'll show later, our major divisions are also cultural at home. The, the United States has an individualist culture that is individuals and also civic, has a strong civic dimension. In this uh, society, uh, it's competitive, it's confident, the style is inner-driven. Most of people go after goals that they themselves choose, and they seek to realize these goals in the world. Uh, ethics are moralistic. By that, I mean that principles are assumed to be true, which people internalize early in life, and then they apply these to themselves and others in government, and there's a tendency to insist on uh, uh, fidelity to these principles. Compared to that, non-Western culture is relatively more collective and less civic. Here you find a much more cautious temperament where people typically uh, adapt to the world uh, rather than seeking to change it. So it's more outer-driven. It has to do with people taking cues in their environment rather than from seeking to change the world. Uh, ethics in the, in the non-West are typically situational or conformist. That is, people do what is others expect them to do, what is moral is what the society expects of you. Uh, there is a moral structure, but it tends to be outside the person rather than inside the person, as in the West. The Western style is assertive, confident. People assume, we assume that individuals can dominate their environment and, and bring about change. Whereas the non-West is more cautious and adaptive. People adjust to the environment, usually, without seeking fundamental change. That's what they think they can do. Western culture is strongly associated with wealth and power. According to one analysis, the correlation between individualism and wealth across 40 countries is 0.82. That's extremely strong. In other words, if you, if you want to be rich, it helps a lot to have an individualist culture. Now, and also, West, the Western culture is associated with strong government, something I'll come back to. 
Uh, Asia has found another way to get rich based on collective authority, where the leaders set the tone and people do what the society expects. But I will argue that that is, in the end, second best to individualism. Culture is malleable. It may change over time, and we'll see that it is changing. It's based on socialization. It's not rigidly linked to race or ethnicity. Uh, in fact, it, can, it arises really from socialization. It depends on how people are raised. Both styles can produce wealth and power, but they do it in very different ways. Both also have value. There's no assertion here that Western culture is superior in a general sense. Uh, the non-West is typically stronger in collective and aesthetic values than the West, and it's also better in the face of the things that cannot be mastered. The West is all about mastery, about control. Uh, the non-West is, to some extent, about endurance, about stoicism, dealing with the things that cannot be mastered. And to give you a recent example, a couple of years ago, we had the Ebola crisis in Africa. You remember where this, this horrible virus erupted in West Africa and thousands of people were dying? And, and the Africans responded with stoicism. There was no panic. They just dealt with the situation. They endured it until finally, finally, it went away, mostly went away. Whereas in America, a single case of Ebola came to New York, and there was panic. This person went to... Uh, one hospital, and they put the whole hospital was on lockdown, and the governors were on television, and the mayors were promising oh, do everything that they could. Yeah. See, we're not good at situations we can't control, and that's, that's, the, that's one of the real Achilles heels of the West. Well, that's a place where the non-West is very strong. Classical civilization, biblical religion, Greece and Rome, all promoted individualism, moralism. These attributes uh, go back to classical civilization. Another fact that is in Europe, uh, you never have centralized power. You never have a single country that dominates. Uh, the attempt to do so is defeated by other countries, usually led by the British. Another factor is religion. I already mentioned uh, the origins of religion, but also then you have the Reformation. Protestantism is a huge liberation of the individual within uh, European culture, and that had a lot to do, as we'll see uh, just in a moment, with America. Uh, and finally, the British uh, spread individualism around the world with their empire. They basically exported their culture. And the place that was crucial above all for their future and our future is the founding of America. It's crucial that this culture came to be founded not just by the British, not even just by Protestants, but by the Puritans, who are probably the most extreme individualists the world has ever seen. This is one of the pivotal moments in history. We have an elite that is dedicated to a certain vision of the world. If ever a group bore the burdens of freedom, they did. They were prepared to cross an ocean and settle in the wilderness to pursue religious freedom. Now, that's flat-out crazy. Nobody does that on a rational basis. They represented the, the point of the lance, the most extreme expressions of a unique history that already produced the world's most individualist civilization in Europe and especially in Britain. So their temperament, came to characterize the culture of a whole, an assertive and moralistic temperament that was impatient, which refused to accept the limitations of the real world and wanted to remake the world in various ways. And that temperament, because of America, got control of an entire continent. And that, I think, is the essential reason for American primacy. You put people like this, or their, their heirs, in charge of a continent, and you get a world power. That's all there is to it. Pretty simple. Now, there are some other bases of uh, American primacy, um, geography, the market, government, these things 
many people think have nothing to do with culture, and they have a lot to do with power, and that's certainly the case. But uh, it turns out if you look at them closely, the influence they have, which is real, is also, also conditioned by culture. For example, uh, geography. Some recent authors, most notably Jared Diamond, uh, author of Guns, Germs, and Steel, complain that geography explains uh, Western dominance of the world. It has nothing to do with culture. But it turns out that a lot of countries had much the same geographic uh, background. Uh, and you can't explain which of them became world power simply on the basis of geography. Uh, geopolitics, uh, a number of theorists have pointed out that America is unique and Britain also before it in having an isolated a situation where they were secure against invasion uh, and thereby uh, might have simply ignored the world, didn't have to worry about foreign policy. But they didn't do that. Uh, what they ended up doing, actually, is making their, their security a basis for a very light and very ambitious foreign policy. So we find in the British case, they organized security against various countries that tried to dominate Europe, first Spain, then France, then Germany. Uh, and they succeeded in, in preserving a balance of power. The Americans, of course, uh, took the lead in the 20th century in uh, dealing with both world wars, defeating fascism and communism. We didn't have to do a lot of this. We could have sat back, and some Americans wanted us to sit back and not get involved. But no, we had to take the high road, and we took the high road. We could take it in part because we were secure. Now, turning to the market, at the end of history, we imagine that all countries are now capitalist, and it's true that capitalism makes any society richer, and many countries have become richer recently by liberating their economies. But some people get a lot more, some countries get a lot more out of the market than others. And individualist culture tolerates insecurity a lot better than a collective culture. The non-West has become capitalist in part to get rich, but the fears of competition are much stronger than you find in America and in much of the Western world. Government intervenes to protect the public and various protected groups against the full rigors of competition. Most of these societies are terrified of competition. You, you think that's true of Greece or Italy. Well, it's certainly true of those countries within the West. But outside the West, it's even more true. Uh, most people, most societies want to have things set up such that life is predictable. And that isn't what you get with the market. There's a trade-off between wealth and insecurity. You have to accept higher insecurity to get greater wealth. Uh, in China, we're seeing uh, the same kind of thing. China has liberated its economy and gotten a lot richer, but there's still a lot of resistance to the full rigors of the marketplace. Good government, uh, the main thing here is, that, is, as I said before, that good government has primarily been a feature of the West, not of the non-West. Uh, you might think that an individualist culture would resist government, but actually it looks like the moralism of that culture is the key to good government. That's what allows government to develop in the West, has not developed in the rest of the world. That's what uh, allows the rule of law and later on democracy to become established. Whereas in the non-West, you don't really have that. So for the West, it, we manage to reconcile order and freedom because the bases of civility of strong institutions are largely internalized. And so we achieve order without having to have an overweening state that controls everything. Whereas in the non-West, because the structures of order are more external to people, they have to choose between order and freedom. They can't have both of them. And that's a, a fundamental problem uh, in, in those societies. Another factor for the, for the United States is simply the British. They have, even among the European countries, the British are unusually gifted at politics. Somehow, from the formation of the kingdom back in the ninth century, they had a capacity to generate strong institutions, a quality of trust between rulers and ruled that is a marvel 
There's no other society that shows this. There's one possible exception, and that's Japan. One of the many ways in which Japan is like the West, some of the ways anyway, is that it actually bears quite a resemblance to Britain. Now, let's, I now want to turn and talk a little bit about the burdens of freedom, why it is that these are so essential to American freedom and ultimately power. Uh, in America, freedom isn't carefree. We say that America believes in freedom, and that's true. Uh, many believe that's why we lead the world. But freedom by itself doesn't lead to productivity, doesn't lead to effort, doesn't lead to the sinews of, of wealth and power. Those things require that people work hard. So for America, somehow, freedom is a license, not for leisure, but for labor. That's the key. How do we get that labor out of freedom? Well, that's because of the demanding way in which an individualist culture defines what freedom means. So the real secret to America isn't freedom, but the burdens of freedom. In America, the burdens include the demands that society makes, even in a free country. You have to obey the law, pay taxes, you have to work for a living. A lot of things we demand of people that go along with being in a free society. And then you have responsibilities to yourself. You have to compete in the marketplace. You have to compete in the meritocracy. I see this every day as a professor. I'm dealing with young people who are trying to make it in the meritocracy. They all face intense competition. That's the heaviest burden that they bear. And it's almost uniquely a Western thing. In no other society is the pressure so extreme. And, and, so un, and there's no way to fiddle it. No way, there's no, no way to get around it, really. You have to get in there and compete. This is very hard. Uh, the confusing moral and, and, and other issues come up all the time. The authorities basically leave ordinary Americans to settle these for themselves. Uh, there isn't a lot of guidance. But it's not just that there's – see, what I'm talking about now is obligations that offset the freedoms. But it's worse than that. Actually, freedom is obligation. It isn't just that freedom has some obligations linked to it. It is obligation. Why is that? Well, freedom for Americans implies autonomy. And autonomy requires that you have an inner discipline. At a personal level, to say that I am free means not that I suffer no constraints. Rather, I internalize my constraints, making them my responsibility rather than someone else's. Only by internalizing these burdens does one really become free. Even if others improve conditions for me, I am still determined by my environment. Only if I take responsibility for the challenges that remain do I really become autonomous. Only then am I really in charge. Only then am I really free. So freedom is not an external condition that can be given to somebody by another person or by a society. Rather, it's a quest that the individual must take on. So freedom is not a condition. Freedom is a project. It's something you work on. You assume responsibility for your situation, and you work on it to improve it. That's what most Americans mean by freedom. Now, compared to that, for the non-West, freedom means rather the burdens of necessity. As those societies construe, can look at life, life is about coming to terms with the outward demands that are made uh, of you by tradition, by government, by your immediate associates, by society in general, tradition, some of those authorities are accountable, some are not accountable. Anyway, you're taking your cues from outside, and you also have stoicism in the face of adversity. Uh, so the difference between this and accepting responsibility in the Western sense is that it isn't in the service of the individual goals, because there's much less sense that the individual is even separate from the society. Rather, you're part of a society that is adjusting to the demands of the world and to the authorities. 
And, and this, this stance, which is so much more passive than we find in the West, is not, in, not imposed by conditions. The standard academic belief is, well, people are like this because they don't have freedom and opportunity. Just give them freedom, they'll start behaving like individualists. No, no. In fact, if you gave it to them, it might just confirm their view that the environment is in charge. And also, the presence of individualism in the West it was apparent Centuries ago, long before the Western world was rich and powerful as it is today, it was already individualist. It was individualism that generated the wealth and power, not the other way around. So the, the life of necessity is, is a deeply rooted feature of non-Western countries that it's hard to trace to any specific condition. Also, public institutions are weak uh, because they don't have a moralistic culture in which, which l brings together the rulers and the rules so that they are all uh, accountable to a set of moral precepts. Leaders and lay do not share obligations to good government and, and enforce them on each other, as happens in the West. Rulers are self-seeking, but rebellion against the rulers is also self-seeking. It's, it's also uncivic. Both the rulers and the ruled are out for immediate advantage in various kinds, but they don't do it in the name of higher principles. But we're not home free. Uh, America has certain social problems that I think can be seen as a weakening of individualism, turning first to inequality. The campaign is focused very much on economic inequality, especially at the top of society. We hear a lot about the 1%. This is, these are the groups attacked by liberal political candidates. Uh, they're certainly making a killing on Wall Street. That's certainly true. I don't in any way minimize that. But another reason for growing inequality is because of the breakdown of society at the bottom, where people are no longer working and, and engaging in uh, constructive activity as though they used to do. Uh, women are increasing in their work levels, but the men are falling uh, <laughs> off. And uh, this is a fundamental problem. There's a great deal of concern about it uh, in the social policy world. And uh, this really is a fundamental difficulty. Uh, also, uh, marriage has declined, uh, particularly for those with less than a high school education or indeed with a high school education, very sharp increase in the share of children born outside marriage. And the, the bottom line shows for the college educated, uh, they're doing quite well, a very small increase. But for the less educated, there's been this breakdown of uh, marriage. And that's something, of course, that Charles Murray wrote about in Coming Apart. So these are problems. You can see them, I think, as uh, a defeat for individualism because these are people in, who are, in fact, violating their own values. Uh, that none of those involved in non-work and non-marriage defend what they're doing. Uh, on the contrary, they can't really explain why it is that things are falling apart. Uh, and that inability to command oneself, to deliver on one's own goals, that is that, it's in that sense that individualism is weakening. So lower-class America is, lower-income America, rather, is, is laying down the burdens of freedom and instead taking up the burdens of necessity, more characteristic of the non-West. Because if you don't have work and marriage, what you're really doing is giving your life over to a life of survival from day to day. You can't plan things. You're, you're involved in continual turmoil. You cannot actually achieve personal goals. What do you do about that? Well, the trend is to uh, enforce work and, and try to deter only pregnancy. That's very much, that's the way we're going. So this doesn't lead to a change in policy, but it does lead to another way of understanding what we're doing, which is what we're really doing here is trying to enforce, to, re to reform and, and strengthen individualism. Uh, turning to poverty, uh, low work levels and non-marriage have been longstanding problems. Uh, and uh, one way to 
express what, what's going on here is simply that poverty has proved to be very resistant to change. Even in the midst of an affluent society with apparently many opportunities, we don't find today's poor taking up those opportunities the way as it was, would have happened uh, 50 years or 100 years ago. Something has changed, and I think that something is, in fact, culture. The, the great fact about today's seriously poor is that they mostly have origins outside the Western world. They're coming originally from Africa, from Latin America, from Asia, countries that are not individualist. And so these are societies where people don't naturally think of life in terms of getting ahead. They think rather in terms of survival, of simply getting through various adversities. And I think that's what this, uh, this pattern mostly represents. And we keep trying to find ways to liberate people to, to overcome the barriers that prevent them working and getting ahead and so on. But what's missing is the fundamental commitment of an individual's lifestyle, where you see life as a project. And it's, we're always trying to get people to assume that we say, you've got to take responsibility. What we're really saying is we have to internalize your environment as in the way that the theorists say. That's what makes you free, is internalizing your environment. They don't do that. The environment is always in charge. It's always out here. And that is the problem. We're having some success with what's called paternalism, with requiring people to work and go to school, get through, you know, also avoid uh, crime, or enforcing the rules better than we used to do, and that's good. But the ultimate solution is for the poor to become more individualist. That's what, in fact, uh, is required. If they start to see life as a project, then everything will change. Uh, immigration, uh, currently a very contentious issue, uh, the battle has focused mostly on what to do with illegal immigrants, but I think a cultural perspective sheds some new light. Our goal here should be a multicultural society. I take that to mean a society in which uh, people are diverse, but at the same time, uh, it remains an individualist society in which most people have the inner-driven temperament that I have described. That's pretty much what America has been for some time. Today's immigration is challenging that because it's coming mostly from the non-Western world. This poses special problems for assimilation, because we, which we didn't have until recently, until really the last 50 years. Immigrants 100 years ago came mostly from Europe, so they were already pretty individualists coming in. They had to learn about American life, speak English, learn about the Constitution, all that, uh, but that, that's all. They didn't have to become a different kind of person. Today's immigrants, however, are coming in largely with a non-individualist mindset. They face a tougher task. It's not just learning English in the American Constitution. They also have to take on a different psychology. They have to become individualist. They have to bear the burdens of freedom. That's difficult. It's a profound challenge that earlier immigrants didn't face. Now, as I see it, we still want to have immigration. It's a good thing. It has been a good thing. But although we want diversity, we also want America to remain dominantly a Western country because the qualities that we got from individualism, the civic qualities, the dynamism, all of that depended on a certain mindset. We don't want to give that up. We want to keep that. Now, where's the bottom line for all, for all this, for American primacy? Well, I think American primacy is going to continue. Uh, Asia will certainly become a major economic power. But its development, I think, will be limited because of the profound problems which Asia has dealing with economic freedom and any kind of freedom because of the uh, Asian problem that Asian, Asia really cannot reconcile order and freedom in the way the West can do. America has the advantage of a more innovative economy, uh, a stronger government, and greater soft power. And all of these differences are ultimately cultural. They go back to that individualist culture. 
So and another factor is that the soft power is especially important. Uh, the um, really only a moralistic country can lead the world. Here's Atlas carrying the globe. I think Americans sometimes feel that's what they're doing. They're they're carrying the world. And it's true. I don't. I'm not sure there's any escape. Uh, I, in one lecture based on this, I've concluded by saying, if we quarrel with this, our quarrel is with God. God has given us this fate. Why does this happen? Why do we have this responsibility? Why can't we shove, shove it off on someone else? It's paradoxical, but the urge to do good, to take responsibility, is deeply rooted in an individualist culture. The very culture that might seem to separate people from social responsibility actually makes them more responsive to moral challenges. And that's what's happening here. America, in, in the desire to save the world, ends up carrying a disproportionate share of the load. But a major question here is cultural change. I think it's going on in opposite directions. In China, you have growing individualism at the top of society. The Chinese elite is interested in more freedom and the burdens of freedom. Unfortunately, that's contrary to the regime. So China is profoundly conflicted over freedom in a way that we're not. And that's going to be their main problem. How do they deal with this? And Americans are, we have these problems at the bottom of society where people are moving away from individualism. And we need to bring that back. We need to pr promote greater individualism. The Bradley Lectures, sponsored by the Lind and Harry Bradley Foundation, were given for over a quarter century at AEI, beginning in September 1989. I and AEI senior fellow Carlin Bowman hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember to like and subscribe to our podcast and click the link in the description below to watch the full lecture. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time on the Bradley Lectures Podcast.